Good morning, everybody. So I played that clip from Toy Story 2 because I love that movie and because it proves or, or demonstrates a point for you and I that we're going to spend some time focusing on this morning is that there are times in our life that you and I struggle with understanding who we are. In fact, if we were honest, probably all of us would raise our hand that there's at least once or twice or maybe a dozen times in our life that we struggle with understanding who we are. And in that, that short clip, I wanted you and I just to capture the moment when you and I finally discover who God says we are and what that means for our lives and what that means for the decisions the choices we make every single day that are really, whether we know it or not, are based upon who we think we are or who we are trying to become. There's so much wrapped up in our identity that we don't even realize that's the root of so many of the decisions, both good and bad, that we make in life. And so this morning, I want to take some time to talk about that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 6 and 7. We'll be looking uh, at the story of Gideon as we're walking through this series looking at the ordinary lives or the ordinary people that we are and how God uses that to do extraordinary things in our world. And so this morning we're going to talk about Gideon. We're going to talk about identity and understanding what that means for you and I. The story that we're going to look at, as you've been here the last couple weeks, most of us are probably familiar in that that it's it's a Bible story in the Old Testament that's pretty famous about how God takes Gideon and Israel's army and reduces it down to a handful of people. And they actually defeat their enemies with, again, one of the military strategies that you and I would never come up with because it was God doing this through his people to help them understand once again who they are. This morning, as we look at this story, I want you to to understand some of the tension that you and I find ourselves living in is that tension between living our life to try to somehow either figure out or prove who we are as opposed to living day by day in the peace and the confidence of knowing who you are in Jesus. There's a huge difference And most of us end up living our life trying to become something or trying to earn an identity or trying to figure that out. And that's, for not all of it, but a good portion of these decisions you and I would look back on our life and regret are tied to the fact that you and I don't know who we are. And we're striving to be something that we're not. Or we're lost and we're confused and we don't know who we are. So we make decisions based on that. So with that mindset this morning, we're going to walk through chapter 6 and 7 of Judges and look at the story of Gideon. As God comes to Gideon, God comes to Israel at a very interesting point in their history. Uh, before we, we jump into the story, let me give you some background. So we were here, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Israel, 400 years of bondage, coming out of, of Egypt. God sets them free. Moses leads them through the Red Sea. They end up in the wilderness for 40 years. They get into the Promised Land, which was last week we talked about Jericho this fortified city that through God's amazing power, he causes the walls to fall down and the amazing thing happens. They start to move into the promised land. So if you fast forward into the story, now we're, we're years past that point where Israel has taken this land that God has given them. They're now established in that land, but they've now found themselves at a place where they're struggling, where they're, they don't understand who they are, where they're beginning to lose ground instead of gain ground on what God has given to them. So it's that context that we find this story. And so I want to walk through the first things I want to just take a look at is what Gideon and Israel walk through is an identity crisis. And there's some evidence in this passage and in our own lives that if these things are true of you and I, that you and I can trace this back to the fact that we're, we're dealing with an identity crisis. We don't know who we are and we're striving to be something that we're not. And so understanding that the first thing that's true of you and I when we go through an identity crisis is true of what was true of Israel in verse 1 of chapter 6, that is that sin becomes routine. It becomes normal. It says in verse 1 of chapter 6 in in Judges, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. This is the fourth time in the book of Judges that that phrase is used of Israel. That they continually do evil in the sight of God, and because of that, they seem to be losing ground. They seem to be stuck in a, a habitual routine, day in, day out, of doing the same thing that leads them back to the same place that they don't want to be over and over and over again. That sin becomes routine, sin becomes common, sin becomes almost predictable because this is the fourth time it's mentioned in the Judges, but it's not the last time. They keep repeating this cycle over and over and over again. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know all of us would raise our hand if we're honest to say, I have had those seasons in my life where sin becomes normal. 
It becomes a part of the rhythm of my life. I keep making the same mistakes and the same bad choices over and over and over again. And whether you and I know it or not, what we don't realize is at the core of that is you and I are struggling with who we are. And part of the process of habitual sin is trying to grasp for something, some kind of significance, some kind of identity, some kind of happiness, some kind of contentment. So we strive for that, but we just keep making the same failure over and over and over and over again. We give it a nice name. We call it addiction. And you don't have to be a, a, a certified addict to, be a, to have addiction issues because we're all sinners and that all becomes a part of the routine. It was that way for Israel because they were losing grasp of who they were. It is that way for you and I because we don't understand who we are. We live in that reality. And if you and I don't have those people in our life that we can trust, that you can go to and you can ask the question, what do you see in my life? What is it that's not right? Or say, is there patterns in my life that I'm not realizing that keep happening over and over? And if you have that one trusted friend, it's amazing how people can see more than you can. Anybody know that's true? That you and I are blinded to our own sin and reality sometimes. And someone comes along and says, oh, I can see this. It's obvious. You keep doing this and this. And then they kind of rehearse your history for you. And you see, oh, you're right. It is pretty predictable. It is a part of my life. It has become normal. Sin should never become normal. It shouldn't be, our friends and family shouldn't be able to predict our behavior in terms of the bad choices that we make. That means it's become a part of our life. It's become something that's routine for you and I. Others can identify that. So many people, some people are starting to get to know me. I love Baja Fresh. I love In-N-Out, but I like Baja Fresh too, okay? And for me, I, I, anytime someone wants an appointment, they want to have lunch, if they don't mention any place, I will always say, hey, how about Baja Fresh? And they usually say yes, which is great. In fact, when we were in Oregon, I, I loved it so much, there was a, the closest Baja Fresh to us was 30 minutes away. But that doesn't stop me, because I like it a lot. And so anytime someone would want to schedule an appointment with me outside of the, the immediate area where we lived, I would always say, hey, let's go to Baja Fresh in this place. And so, so I would go there quite frequently. And so, so much so that, that what began to happen is I got to know two or three of the employees and they knew me. In fact, so much so that they, they knew me, some of them knew me by name, but all of them knew me by the same order that I ordered every time I walked in the door. So as I would walk in the door and I was waiting in line, if they would make eye contact with me, like nine times out of 10, I would get to the register and they were already halfway through my order. They knew. They knew I was getting a Baja burrito with chicken, no pico de gallo, crispy. That's the way I like it, okay? That's, and so they would just, and they would, and, they, and I'd get a drink they, every single time. In fact, one of my friends came and I was telling him about this, that they could predict what I'm going to order. He goes, no, they can't. And so sure enough, as we got to the line, the gal starts going right through my order and she's like, she gets it done. And, and the guy, like my friend is standing there and he's shocked. And, and, and she, he said, you know him? She goes, yeah, I know his order. He orders the same thing every time. And every Friday he comes in with his beautiful wife and this is what she orders. She had memorized the whole thing. She knew exactly what we would do because we were that predictable. And sometimes when it comes to sin, you and I don't even see around us how, how predictable we become in our behavior. What certain things are habitual downfalls in our life. And that's why in order for us to really get to the core of what it means to know who we are in following Jesus, it takes relationships around us to be able to say, hey, by the way, I can predict what you're going to do next because I've seen it happen before. Because sin has become routine. And by the way, it is not a sin to eat at Baja Fresh. It is very godly to eat at Baja Fresh, okay? But sin becomes routine. It was routine for Israel, becomes routine for us. And that's the first sign of evidence that you're struggling with your identity. You're going through an identity crisis. The second thing that's true is, in, again, in chapter 6, going to verse 2, and another point of evidence of an identity crisis is that paradise is lost. In other words, everything that you thought your life was supposed to be about everything that you thought God had promised you, everything that you're trying to achieve and your goals, and you almost get there and they start to slip through your fingers. The paradise that you thought your life is supposed to be, you're so close, but you can never quite get there. And when you think you've reached it, somehow it seems to fade away. So listen, going on in verse 2, it says, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. 
They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So again, understand the history for Israel here, what's happening. Is they've gone through 400 years of bondage. They get freed from Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They wander around for 40 years. God sustains them, miraculously provides for them, takes them through all these cities that they've taken throughout the promised land. He gives them the land that they have. They've reached the pinnacle, the ultimate. They're where they're supposed to be. They're in the promised land. And yet it's slipping through their fingers. They're losing the very thing that is the whole reason why they were set free. Their whole understanding of who they are as a people is now being lost to their enemies around them because, as it said in verse 1, they continued to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They lived in habitual sin and patterns of bad behavior. And because of that, the very thing that they wanted begins to slip through their fingers. You and I experience that all the time. See, you and I have an agenda for our lives. You and I have a preferred future. You and I have goals. We have a a structure. We have an ideal of what our life is supposed to be like. And so when we almost get there or when we do get there and we think that we've achieved it, what we begin to discover is that that is the very thing that has defined who we are. And when that begins to slip away, we begin to slip away. Because as those things fade away, and don't have what we thought they would, we lose sight of who we are because everything of who we are was wrapped up in that ideal. And maybe we think that's what God's will for my life was. And even in what we thought was God's will, and it begins to fade away, we lose ourselves. It's very interesting when just as the number of few years ago as the economy started to turn downward, what began to happen for you and I as a people in this country is we began to realize that for years what we had been told is our God-given right because we are somehow God's special country is that every American could achieve and expected and deserve the American dream. Which means you can have everything that you want. You just have to work really hard for it. You can have the house and the car and the career and you can have the marriage. You can have everything and everything will just be perfect until the stock market starts to turn downward. Until housing value goes down. Until you lose your job and you can't make your mortgage payment. Until you can't get along with your spouse. See, what's happened over the last five, seven, ten years in our country is that we finally began to realize for the first time, I think, in our nation's history that we had been sold a lie. That we had designed our preferred future only to realize when we got there, it slipped through our fingers. And paradise was lost. So we scramble. So we try to make it work, not realizing that it has to do with our identity. As a nation, our identity, and as a people, we have been wrapped up in, I identify with my job, with my economic status, with my career, with my family, with the house that I live in, the neighborhood that I choose. That became our identity. And then just as Israel began to lose everything, I think God has used the downturn in our country to once again get our attention. To say, you are not defined by economics. Although those in power would tell you, you are. You are not defined by a specific career choice that is labeled successful. That's what our culture would tell us. You're not defined by the location that you choose to live or the exclusivity of the neighborhood that you end up in. You're not defined by those things. Culture tells us that we are, but the more that we buy into that, the more we realize they slip through our fingers and paradise is lost. And when paradise is lost, we're lost. So we struggle to go back to that way of spend more money, buy more things, be more happy. And it just starts all over again. So God was showing Israel, your identity is not based upon a land that you live in. And he says to us, your identity is not based on the country you live in. It's based on something far greater. And you and I need to understand that for some of us in the last decade, you've lost yourself. You've lost yourself because what you thought you were no longer exists. And because of that, you're upside down. You don't know what to do. You don't know which way to go. You don't even know who you are because you had chosen to identify yourself by something that was simply a mirage. It wasn't real. And so your paradise has been lost. And because of that, you've lost a part of yourself and you struggle with identity. 
Third thing that's true of an identity crisis is that you and I have a tendency, as Israel did, is that history is forgotten. So look at verse 7 of chapter 6. It says, When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. What did Israel do? They have spiritual amnesia. They completely forgot where they came from. So God rehearses to a prophet and says, Hey, by the way, remember you were in bondage in Egypt. Remember what you went through. Remember what it took for me to use my power through you to get you into this land where you are. Remember the history that you have because you have forgotten where you've come from. You somehow think that you arrived here on your own, therefore you can establish your identity. And God reminds them, it was because of my power through you that you got to where you are today. Israel had forgotten. It was God. It wasn't them. You and I forget on a daily basis. We forget the grace of God in our life. We forget the forgiveness. We forget how God works in our life. There's that moment for, for all of us in this room, maybe some of you haven't come to a place in your life yet where you fully committed to give your life to follow Jesus. But those of you who have, there's that moment where you, for the first time, the light comes on and you can understand that you are a sinner and that you're broken and that God loves you so much that he's chosen to forgive you because what Jesus did on the cross, he took your sin and he took it on himself and he paid the debt. And so there's this deep sense of gratitude and amazement of God's grace in our life. But then life happens. And over time, you and I forget what God has done in our life. We forget the moments where God brought his power in our life. We forget the moments where he's brought his forgiveness. We forget the moments where he sustained us. We forget all those things and we try to grasp for something different. It's common to all of us. That's why when Jesus gathered his disciples before he went to the cross and they had communion for the first time, he took the bread and the cup. Anybody recall what he said to his disciples? He said, do this to remember me. You think, well, that's kind of strange. No. As he looked around that room and as he looked down all of human history and he saw all of us, he thought, they're going to forget. They're going to forget what's going to be accomplished in these next days that I'm going to die and rise from that. They're going to forget about the impact. So they need to do this so they don't forget. They remember. See, you and I have to remember that if you've given your life to Jesus, the God of the universe has embrace you into his family, has given you access to all of his blessings, has given you grace and mercy every single day to sustain you not only in this life, but for eternity. But on a daily basis, you and I forget that. We forget who we belong to. A few years ago, a high school kid from next door came to our front door and he's playing high school at the, or playing football at the local high school. And he, he had a, he was doing a fundraiser and they had these little uh, fundraiser cards that you could purchase one for $20. And then on that card was a list of all these local businesses that would give you like five or 10 or 15 or 20% off of whatever, if it was a store or a restaurant. And so for 20 bucks, you could get for a year long, you get all these amazing discounts. And so when I looked at that, I thought that's a no brainer. I'm going to support our neighbor. He's playing football and I get all these benefits. And so I remember I gave him the 20 bucks and I'm standing there after he leaves at my front door, just looking at the list of all the businesses. I'm like, wow, I go there and I shop there and well, I could get this there. And I'm thinking, this is really cool. So I took out my wallet, I put it into my wallet and put it back in my back pocket. And then before you know it, 10 months goes by. And I usually have a pretty good read on what's in my wallet. Kim carries all the money, so I don't have to worry about that stuff. But so I know what's in my wallet. And so for some reason, there were some different areas in my wallet that I hadn't ventured in in quite some time. And so I was, I don't know, I was cleaning things out. But I discovered this card. And this is, this is strange. I was looking at it, and I said to myself, where in the world did this card come from? I couldn't remember this kid coming to the door and me buying this. But I was looking at all this, and I thought, wow, I've had access to all of this. And I looked at the expiration date for the last 10 months. And there's only two months left that I can use it because I had completely forgotten it was in my wallet. And so not once actually during that whole year, because I put it back in my wallet and I forgot again for the next two months. I never got one dime out of the 20 bucks that I spent in discounts. Now, far greater than the discounts you can get in the store is the fact that when you say yes to Jesus, 
that God chooses. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 talks about. Gives us every spiritual blessing. In, in Peter, Peter tells us that we've been every, given everything we need to live a life that God's purposed for us. He's given that all to us, but do we remember? Or have we forgotten who we are? Have we forgotten who we have access to? Have we forgotten that? As Israel forgot their history, you and I forget ours. And when we forget ours, we find ourselves struggling to know who we are. We go through an identity crisis. And then the, the final point about it, or final truth about an identity crisis is that ultimately, verse 13 tells us that God is questioned. When we find ourselves at that moment where we start to question God, you know that you're struggling with your identity because now you're questioning who God is, not only who you are. But it says in verse 13, But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? So he's talking to, to God through the angel of the Lord. Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Okay, you got to be honest. Anybody ever felt like God abandoned you? If you've ever followed Jesus for one day of your life, all of us go through that. We go through those moments where we think everything's supposed to be this way, but it's not. And we have somehow in our mind, we have, we have bought into this idea of faith that if life is good, then God is good. But if life is bad, then God is no longer good. He's, he's bad as well. Because he's supposed to guarantee that life is always good, always happy, never painful, always goes my way. The moment it doesn't, then somehow God is not good anymore. And we think that if, if somehow God, things are not good and that God has left us because life's not good, that he's abandoned us. So the first the question that Gideon has is, where did you go? What happened? You reach that point, you start to question, how did I get here? How did these things happen? And if these things happen, somehow it's your fault because you've abandoned us. One thing is for sure, you may not feel it, you may not experience it, but there's never a moment in your life that God will ever, ever abandon you. He won't. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. Even when we forsake him, he won't forsake us. There may be times when you think he has, that you might feel as though he has. But it's in those moments that he's actually at work in your life, whether you see it or not. But sometimes it's those places where you and I have to feel, even though it's not reality, we have to feel as though we are abandoned because it's at that moment, finally, we will turn to God. Finally, God will get our attention. When Courtney, early on when Courtney was young, Kim and I figured out pretty quickly that she was going to be always someone who would push the envelope. I love that about my daughter. Her default is yes, go. And that's her. That's, that's I love about her. But when she's three or four years old and you're trying to parent your child and trying to keep her safe, it creates difficulties. And one of the things that Courtney figured out early on, she's like three or four years old, is she figured out how to unlock the front door and go outside by herself. Now, we had told her time and time again, Courtney, you're welcome to go outside, but you only can go outside with mom and dad. You can't go out. You're not old enough to go out by yourself yet. So when you go out the front door, you need to make sure that mom and dad are with you. And so we laid those, those, those rules out very clearly to her. But she kept finding a way that somehow when Kim and I were distracted or were in the back of the house or in the backyard, she would find her way to the living room, find the front door, unlock it, and go out on the porch. And we would always know that because we couldn't find her, and then the front door would be open, and then she'd be standing out there just enjoying the view. So finally, one day, I thought, we've got to put this to an end because I know my daughter's personality. Today, it's the front porch. Tomorrow, it's the neighbor. Next year, it's going to be around the world, and she's only four. I don't want her to go there yet. So I knew kind of the scenarios unfolding. Kim and I were distracted, and so I traced Courtney, and I watched her move towards the living room, go to the front door, unlock it, and step out. Now, she didn't know that I was watching us, so just as she got out the front door and she was a few steps out on the front porch, I ran up, and I grabbed the door, and I slammed it behind her. Now, I know you're all going to think I'm a horrible dad, okay? Just get over it. Don't judge me because you've been there too if you have kids, okay? And there was this moment of silence, two seconds worth. And then I heard the loudest scream I've ever heard in my life. And I could feel on the other side of the door, Courtney's little hands like pounding, screaming, dad, you've got to let me back in. I'm all by myself. She's crying. She's sobbing. And everything within me wanted to open the door and let her come in, but I couldn't do it. She's going to feel this. I'm thinking, oh, I know the, parent, the, the neighbors are going to come out their front doors. They're going to think I'm abusive. They're going to call the police. I think she has to learn. 
She can't do this. So I waited what seemed like an hour, but it was probably about two or three minutes and just let her go. And then finally I opened the door and she just burst into the living room. She grabs me and she hugs me and she's like, dad, I was so scared. I felt so alone. And I said, you were never alone. I said, I was always on the other side of the door. I said, but I want you to understand something. Don't you ever go outside the front door without mom and dad again. She never did that again. Because she never wanted to feel that sense of abandonment. She never wanted to feel like she was alone again. But she learned her lesson. And the only way she would have learned that lesson is if she would have felt the feeling of being abandoned. God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. But because of our own choices, we will find ourselves feeling abandoned. If you understand the way in Israel's history, they, God didn't go anywhere. Israel did. Israel turned their back on God. God never turned his back on them. Same thing that God was trying to communicate for Gideon. So understanding, if those things are true of our life, then you and I know for sure we're dealing with issues of our own identity. We don't understand who we are. We're going through a crisis that God wants to solve for us, but we have to turn our attention to him. So the the remainder of the things I want to touch on have to do with how do we embrace the identity that God wants to give to us so that we live out in that reality and not our own. Jumping back to verse 12, the first thing that you and I need to understand about embracing God's identity is that we have to remember God's description of us. Verse 12, it says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, let's just take a step back from it and get the context. Okay, so Israel's supposed to be this amazing nation that now has the land that God promised. They're where they're supposed to be. But if you read through the story, what you pick up here is that Gideon, the angel of the Lord, comes, comes to Gideon and finds Gideon threshing wheat to, to get the grain from the wheat in a wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press unless you're scared and in fear for your life and don't want to lose the very thing that you know will keep you alive, which is food. So Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat so that he doesn't lose what he has, overwhelmed with fear, overwhelmed with being in an identity crisis. And God comes along and says to him, mighty warrior. Do you think that that was any kind of category that Gideon had at that moment? Absolutely not. Some people say that that the angel Lord said that to Gideon because he had wealth. Um, I don't think so. I think it was a statement to Gideon. I think it was a statement of all of, for Israel, not just Gideon. What he's saying to him is, mighty warrior, remember who you are. Remember you came out of Egypt. Remember I marched you through the promised land. Remember all the victories I brought for you. Remember the fact that you are a mighty warrior, but you're not acting like one right now. God was saying to Gideon, remember who you are. Remember who I have told you you are. You're a mighty warrior. You're not supposed to be cowering in fear, threshing out weed in a wine press. You're supposed to be a mighty warrior. And for you and I, there are times in our life where you and I need to hear God say once again who we are because we've forgotten and we're acting less than what God said we are. So are you saying we're mighty warriors? Well, in following Jesus, we are. But there is a certain name and a certain title and a certain identity that that every single person who said yes to Jesus, God gives to. It's what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John says, How great is the love of the Father that is lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. That is what we are. Some of you, that might be all you need to hear today. You need to understand this. You are a child of God if you said yes to Jesus. He has welcomed you into your family. And this is why this is so important. Because you and I think in order to be a child of God, we have to act like a child of God. You think, well, that, yeah, you're, you're not making sense. Of course, you, should, you have to act like a child of God to be like a child of God. Being a child of God is not about our behavior. It's not about our spiritual status. It's about God's choice. God chose us to be a part of his family. God chose us to be his kids. God chose us to be his sons and daughters. Do you think it's because we're good enough? No. It's because he chose it. That's why it's so important. Read Ephesians. Paul says it over and over. God chose us. Was that because we were good enough? No. He chose us. That's his choice. And that's why the scriptures highlight the way that we enter into God's family is through the process of adoption. See, adoption is a parental choice. Adoption is a parent choosing a child to become a part of their family. I'm in an extended family. My my second oldest sister and her husband couldn't have kids, so they adopted 
two wonderful girls that are part of our family. They made a choice to adopt Marissa and Ariana before they could either do anything good or bad or somehow earn the right to be in part of the family. They made a choice before Ariana and Marissa ever even knew what was going on. They chose to adopt them. You know what's amazing about them is that they chose to adopt them when they were babies before they could ever figure out if they were going to be good or bad. They just embraced them. And there wasn't a little clause in the paperwork for the adoption that when they reach a certain age and they don't obey mom and dad, that somehow they're unadopted. They're given back. So you think, well, that would be crazy because when you adopt, you embrace them and you take them good, bad, and indifferent, right? But somehow we apply that to God. So God chooses me to be a part of his family, but I've had a really bad season and I've really failed and I've sinned horribly and you don't know how bad it is and somehow I'm no longer a child of God. Is it your choice or is it God's? It's God's choice. That means on your worst day, that means at the lowest moment and the most evil actions and thoughts that you've ever had in your, in your life, if you had made a commitment to give your life to Jesus, guess what? Even at your worst moment, God still looks at you and says, you are my child. Now, he doesn't want us to stay there, but you and I can't disqualify ourselves from a choice that God has already made. You have to understand that. Because access to God is not based on good behavior. That's the law. It's based on God's choice. But God made that choice so that we would begin to act like children of God. Because the only way we can is if we know we really are. And that one's taken care of. Then I live in that every day. I live in this reality that I am a child of God. I belong to God. God has made that choice. And because of that, I can live in that. That is so important because how many times do you and I try to live out a different identity? We try to achieve something that we're not and we fail miserably and then we take it upon ourselves and our ego takes a huge hit because I didn't match up. I didn't become what I was supposed to be. I fell short. I'll tell you, as a pastor in our culture, I live with this one. This is one God settled in my life 10 years ago. There is no title. There's no relationship. There's no career. There's no status that trumps this identity. I'm a child of God. I am a pastor, husband, father, second. I am a child of God, first and foremost. So I, the reason that's important for me is because so many times people will put on the pastor the numerical success of the church. Wow, the pastor's really good if the church is growing numerically. Wow, the pastor really stinks if the church is dying numerically. That's what we do in our culture. So you get the strokes when the numbers are up, but not so much when the numbers are down. And if I, as a pastor, buy into that lie, it will destroy me. But if I realize I'm a child of God and God's called me to pastor New Hope and God has great plans for New Hope and its success is not based on John Amstutz, its success is based on him because we're all children of God. That's why you and I have to live in that reality. It's not your career. It's not your economic status. It's not in relationship. It's the fact that God says you're my child and that trumps everything. That's the primary identity we all have, which leads to the second thing. Go on in verse, jump all the way to verse 25 to verse 27. Part of the process of embracing God's identity is actually redirecting our worship back toward God. Because one of the things you'll discover about identity is that ultimately your identity is drawn from the very thing that you worship. Because you become what you worship. Even if you don't want to, it happens. So in verse 25, it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper altar, a kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men in the town, he did it at night rather than at daytime. So what's going on here? Remember verse 1 where it said that once again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is what that evil was. Is that, as I mentioned last week, Israel gets into the promised land and what do they do? They look around and say, hey, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king like everybody else. We want to worship like everybody else. So they start picking and choosing gods from the other people that, that are surrounding nations and they start adopting them. So Baal and Asherah had to do with with fertility and sex. and It was just twisted. So Israel starts mixing their worship towards Baal and Asherah poles. It's just bizarre stuff. And so God says, if you want to really be successful, if you want to understand who you are, you have to get back to what true worship is. 
it's not this stuff that you've twisted and demented and focused on the wrong thing because what you worship is what you will become. It's reflected in our lives as human beings. We will simply reflect the very thing that we value the most. That's the way it works. We're, we're like mirrors. We reflect what we're focused on, what our attention is geared towards. And that's true in a lot of, le- a lot of levels. Perfect example in our culture is that places of worship we call churches. But there's actually bigger and more famous and significant places of worship that are not called churches, but they are really churches. In fact, they get filled in the fall and into the wintertime every Sunday and Monday and Thursday. And they get filled with a lot more people than actually go to church. And if you're a sports fan, you might figure out what I'm talking about. It's called football. Some of you are hardcore football fans. I apologize. But what happens in football stadiums is people don't go to watch a game. They go to worship. You know, Tim talked about cheering for the angels. We pray for the angels because we're Dodger fans. But cheering, cheering for a team, it's the same thing. What's the value? If you don't think it's true, then why are the stadiums getting bigger? Why are the fans getting more adamant? You know what's amazing? Is the downturn of the economy doesn't seem to affect the NFL. People will go in debt to have season tickets so they can go. That's why in Texas, because everything's big in Texas, you have Cowboy Stadium. 106,000 people go in to worship. What are they worshiping? They're worshiping somebody who has a skill that they don't have. They're worshiping fame. They're worshiping success. Because hardcore fans would die to be on the field. They would die to be a part of that. They would die to be in the limelight. They would die to put on a uniform and go out and play for their team and let 106,000 people cheer their name. It's worship. Now, please, I'm not against football. I, I enjoy football. But when you watch television and someone has literally got into debt to get season tickets and so they could be on TV and they can paint their entire body the color of their team and they can scream like idiots for three hours. And by the way, they didn't get there just when the game started. They were there 10 hours before because you got a tailgate. It's a whole process and it's worship. And that person becomes identified with their team so much so that all the rest of the week, all they talk about is their team. And they become the number one fan. But that becomes their identity. Why? Because you become what you worship. You may not be a football fan. You may not even care about sports. But there's a goal in your life. There's values in your life. There's something that drives you. And whether you know it or not, you will become the very thing that you're after. That's why God says to Gideon, listen, you've got to get back on track here. You've got to get rid of Asherah and Baal. You have to focus your, your worship back on me again. Because ultimately Israel will become what they value what they worship. So truly embracing God's identity for you and I means that we truly worship him. And worship is not defined by 20 or 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is defined by what I value seven days a week. What is the focus of my life? Is it me? Is it money? Is it status? Is it a car? Is it a career? What is it? Because whatever it is, that's who I will become. But if it's God, then who will I become like? Jesus. And that's where our identity should be wrapped up. Third thing about embracing God's identity is in jump forward to chapter 7, verse 2, is that ultimately you and I need to rely on God's ability through us. So verse 2 of chapter 7 says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. So, if you read through the story... Gideon gathers 32,000 soldiers. Think, wow, well, okay, you got a shot now. You're taking on your enemy. You got 32,000. They've, they've probably fought before because you've come to the promised land. They're going to go to battle. And then God comes along and he starts whittling them down. And through the process, he gets them down to 300 soldiers. And then from there, he separates the 300 into groups of 100. 32,000 to groups of 100. As if you were here last week, it's kind of like marching around a city that's fortified and then yelling, and somehow that's going to work. It's the same thing. God uses military strategy that doesn't work for us. He says, I'm going to make you smaller. I'm going to get you down to the point where you don't think you can do this so that you won't boast that you did this. So you'll understand because you were willing to follow my lead, I did this through you. That your identity is not in your military strength. Your identity is not in your military strategy. Your identity is through my power in you. That's what God was wanting them to understand. So he gets them down to like nothing so that they could understand this is God's power through them. 
That's so important for you and I, because you and I always have a tendency to think that even if we're achieving God's goals, that somehow God needs help with the plan. God needs our wisdom, our ability, our power, our strength to make it happen. What he needs is someone who's willing to surrender to his power through their life. Because if you and I achieve something for God, then who gets credit for it? We do. You can't achieve anything for God apart from God, but somehow we think we can do it. But you and I need to understand our identity is wrapped up in this reality that if I surrender myself and in the simplicity of following Jesus, I don't have anything to offer. I bring nothing to the table except surrender. And God does something amazing in me. Then who gets all the glory? God does. And that's our identity is to glorify God so that in my nothingness, God does something extraordinary. That's what God did through Israel. That's what God wants to do through us. And you and I need to understand, God's not waiting for you to become something so that he can do something through you. He's waiting for you to surrender and allow your identity to be drawn from him. Because the first default for most of us is when we face a challenge, we sit down and try to figure out how we're going to come up with the answer. We don't usually go to God and say, God, okay, what are you up to in this moment? How are you doing this? What do I need to be aware of? What have you done? We don't, we don't respond to difficulty out of the identity of being a child of God. We respond to the difficulty out of our wisdom, our experience, our ability, our know-how, our strategy, all those kinds of things. Never really knowing that God just wants us to be submitted to him. It's the same thing that happened thousands of years ago when David, who's been tending the sheep for his dad, goes to the front lines to bring food to his brothers and some supplies. And when he gets there, he realizes that this entire army of Israel is standing there day after day getting mocked by Goliath. And so David says, we got to do something. I mean, he was insulted. Like, how can you stand here and let this guy insult our God and not do anything? So what does David do? David gets a shield and a spear and he gets armor on and he goes out and takes... No, that's not how the story goes. In fact, what does Saul do? Saul thinks, okay, this guy... I'm I'm just reading Saul's mind here, okay? This little pipsqueak is not going to do anything, but if it makes him feel better, we can at least throw out a little bone to Goliath. That's probably what Saul was thinking. So Saul thinks, well, he shouldn't be defenseless, so let me give him my armor. So he gives David his armor so that he can be a real soldier. And so David kind of stumbles around for a moment, and then he takes it off and he says, no, 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 this is not me. That's not who I am. That's not who God's created me to be at this stage of my life. So what does David do? Anybody recall the story? David doesn't go out as a soldier on the battlefield. What does he do? He goes out as a shepherd. What? A shepherd going out and taking out a guy who's like nine feet tall, 700 pounds. Whoever knows how big Goliath was. He was huge. So what does David do? He doesn't go out with armor. He doesn't go out with a sword or a spear or anything. He goes out with a slingshot. Another great strategy. Why did David go out with a slingshot? Because that's what he used all the time. That's who he was. He was a shepherd. He wasn't a soldier. He was a shepherd. So he goes out on the battlefield as a shepherd. Why? Because David was the only one of the entire Israel army at that moment who actually knew who he was. Saul didn't even know who he was. But David, because David gets there and says, guys, do you get this? We have the, the God of the universe is, is on our side. And you guys are standing here being mocked. And you don't get it. So he goes out and he takes on Goliath. If David would have gone out with Saul's armor on, Israel loses, the Philistines win, and Israel's history is different. But he fought the battle out of who he was, not what he was trying to become or trying to do. The same thing is true for you and I. Stop trying to be something you're not. Stop trying to be what you think other people want you to be and simply be a child of God. And be secure in who God is shaping you to be. Because out of that primary identity will come your secondary identity. First and foremost, being a child of God, out of that you will draw who, you, who God wants you to be in this life. But you and I have to be willing to surrender. Because ultimately, it's His power through us. Then finally, verse 9 through verse 15 of chapter 7. The final thing about embracing God's identity is that you and I have to realize that God is with us. He truly is with us. Then verse 9, it says, During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, this is God reassuring Gideon once again that his presence is with him. He says, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Perah and listen to what they are saying. After you will be encouraged to attack the camp, so he and Perah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts, 
Their camels could not, uh, or people's, excuse me, their camels could no be more counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Give up, get up. God has given the Midianite camp into your hands. What was God doing for Gideon? He was reminding him once again. I brought you to this place. It took you from 32,000 down to 300, down to groups of 100 to prove to you, I am with you. And even though what you're about to go in seems absolutely overwhelming, the odds are against you. It seems impossible. Know that I'm with you. Gideon needed to know that because as he led the people, he needed to know that out of self of, of confidence in who God is, that Israel would be victorious. If you and I were able to live that reality out every single day, that the God of the universe is with me, no matter what I go through, no matter what struggle I face, no matter what bad news I encounter, no matter what things are done to me by other people, God is still with me. If I could settle that one issue, it would change the way I respond to adversity. It would change the way I respond to bad times in life. Because I would know that God is with me, not just because life is good, but God is, good, good, is with me even when life is bad. Even when it's overwhelming, God is still with me. Gideon understand that. As you know, the story goes on. If you haven't, eventually, Israel is victorious. But it's because Israel finally realized who they are. Gideon realized he was a mighty warrior and he fought as one, belonging to God. But what would life be like to have that capacity that you are so secure in who God is and what he's done in your life and the identity that he's given you that no matter what you face, you could still be at peace? No matter what you go through, you could still be firm and that God is still good even when things don't look good. It's about 24 years ago now. Sat in our living room, my, my parents' house, just before, just before Kim and I got married. And my dad had been going to the doctor for a number of years for periodic checkups and they were watching his PSA level and doing tests and there was a chance that he could have prostate cancer. But every time he'd go, come back and they'd say, no, you know, your levels are there, you're okay, you're safe. And then one day he pulled the whole family together, sat us down and he said, I want you to know the test came back this time and the doctors have confirmed I have prostate cancer. And I remember when he said the word cancer, that I immediately went into denial. Not my family, not my dad. We don't experience that kind of tragedy, that kind of difficulty. That just doesn't happen to us. And that's the dialogue that's going in my mind. I'm watching my dad as he begins to explain the process. And this, this is my dad. He's the pillar. He's the rock. He's, he's the one I look up to. He, he never has a bad day in my mind. And so I'm thinking, this is my dad. He, he's not supposed to have this. And as he began to explain the process about surgery and recovery and treatment and all the things that he was going to go through. Not once in that dialogue, not once through the surgery, through the recovery, through the pain, through everything he went through, not once did his peace ever waver. Not once did he ever, at least not in front of me, ever get mad at God. Not once did he cry out, God, why me? Not once did he ever be, was he ever shaken like somehow God wasn't still in control even though he had prostate cancer. And I remember watching that and thinking, I understand, years later, understand, I know why my dad could walk through that the way he did. Because he knew who he was. He knew who God had called him to be. He knew he was a child of God. And that meant even if prostate cancer took his life, God was still good. Because as a follower of Jesus and a child of God, the very thing that you and I would say robbed our life is the very thing that gave him access to life in eternity. The good news is my dad's been cancer-free for years now. But I know there's people in this room, there are people first service, who you have cancer right now. And for some of you, it's a death sentence. The doctor doesn't give you much hope. But I want you to know that what the only thing that will give you peace through this is knowing that you are a child of God. That if somehow cancer takes this physical life, it can't touch your soul. It can't touch your eternity because that's already secure in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And you're a child of God. Therefore, children of God don't have to fear death. 
Because death is not the end. It's the doorway into eternity with Jesus. See, if you and I are secure in that, then when we face things, we're not shaken. We're not overwhelmed because we are convinced that God is with us. Why? Because God's presence doesn't depend upon my good behavior. God's presence is determined by his choice to make us a part of his family. In a few moments, I'm going to pray and the worship team will come and join us back up on stage here. We're going to continue to worship the Lord together. But also at that time, on the side walls here in the sanctuary will be prayer teams that will be positioned so that during the time as we continue to worship, I want to encourage you, as soon as we start singing, you're welcome to go. But I want to encourage you, some of you may be here and you're struggling with your identity. If you would be honest with yourself today, you are in the midst of an identity crisis. And what you might need today is simply simply someone to agree with you and say, you know what? You are a child of God. God does love you. God does accept you. And because of that, you need to draw your strength from that. Some of you are here and you might not even know who Jesus is. You're here today because you know God's been pulling on you, but you don't know what that means. But for the first time, you've understood that the reason you're here is because God wants to give you a new identity. It's called child of God. And the way that you have that is you can tell people in the prayer groups, I don't know who he is, but I want to I be a part of his family. You surrender your life to him and by the cross. What Jesus did, he's taken your sin upon himself and paid for it by his death. So that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failure. He sees Jesus' righteousness upon you so that he can say to you, you're a child of God. But as we're worshiping, don't, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, I don't want to get up because people know I have problems. Hey, we all have problems, okay? But if you know that something's stirring and you don't sit, go have somebody pray for you. And even when the worship, the, the song ends and I'm going to come up and close the service and prayer teams should still be there and you didn't get a chance to go, go be prayed for. If it overwhelms you to go to a prayer team, then turn to a friend or a family member and say, hey, can you pray for me? Because I'm struggling with my identity. I need God to establish that in my life today. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Israel's journey and how many times it, it reflects our own journey and what we walk through and that you used a battle against an enemy to once again help Israel understand who they were. To help Gideon understand that he wasn't defined by the failure of people or even his own failure or his own lack of faith, but he was defined by who you said he was. You called him a mighty warrior and therefore he acted like one. And so today, Lord, I I ask for each one of us here that if we're struggling with this one, that we're having a hard time really embracing who we are and maybe we're trying to find who we are only discovering who we're not that we would hear your words through your holy spirit this morning that if we are willing to surrender our lives to you you have chosen to say to us you are my child you are my son you are my daughter and i choose to embrace you in my family because i love you and it's my choice So, Lord, would you say that to us today? Would you secure that in our hearts and minds so that everything that we do from this moment forward in our lives, we would understand you're with us, that you've purchased us, that we're a part of your family, and because of that, we draw our strength from the identity that you have given us. So, Lord, would you seal that in these next few moments as we are prayed for and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.